gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. I want to welcome all of you, no matter who you are, where you're from. We're a church of broken people, all in need of God's grace. We gather here to understand God's Word. Maybe you're visiting for the first time. We do want to welcome you. We also want to tell you what we're about, that we at Heritage want to make followers of Jesus Christ and live out His gospel here in Lynchburg and around the world, from here in Lynchburg to the nations. We want to proclaim it. We want to be accurate. We want to be clear. We want that to be reflected in our lives and everything we say and do. As we gather, I also want to prepare you. Again, maybe your first time, maybe this is your first time in church ever or in a long time. Our goal on Sunday mornings is to focus on Christ through the singing and then also through the understanding of God's Word. That we're going to go verse by verse through the text. It's called sequential exposition. Sequence expositing, explaining the Word of God. Now, some of you may be familiar with that word exposition. It seems to be a little bit of a buzzword right now, but I want to give one added qualification that is definitive and critical about how we go about it, and that is exposition must follow the biblical narrative and theology that we see in Scripture, that Jesus Himself said from the laws and the prophets, all of these testify about Me. So it is exposition that is distinctly and unapologetically Christo-directional, directed at Christ, that looks forward and anticipates Christ and realizes the person and work of Christ, and that we at this juncture in redemptive history, the next event on the redemptive calendar, praise God, is Jesus returning. So until then, we're going to be faithful. Now we're looking at 1 Timothy on the instructions to a church in Ephesus, how we are to live. Let us begin in verse 14. We've been in this chapter, in this book for several months now. We'll be in it for another 11 or 12 years, I'm sure. But if you miss some of the passages, especially 1 Timothy 2 has to do with the role of men and women with regards to worship and eldership and then deaconate, I would encourage you to go online and watch those sermons so you can get a clear understanding of how we recognize and understand those passages. Beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Why did Paul write this letter to Timothy in Ephesus? We see this actually right here in verse 15, where he says, if I delay, I want you to know how you ought to behave, that you should act in a way befitting what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be the church. Now, when I say the church, I mean the assembly of the people of God. The assembly of the people of God spread out all over the world are made up of individual assemblies gatherings of people, but I'm not talking about the church building. I'm talking about the people. And the people of God is described in absolutely glorious terms. It's so important to regain a high view of the church. 
Not putting people up on some sort of ivory-towered pedestal, but rather recognizing the church for what she is, the beauty of the gathered body of Christ. We are called the household of God, that we are under the very parentage of God. We, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you belong to Him, then you are part of the ecclesia, the gathering of the people of God. And the church are the only people anywhere that has the right to call God Father. We are the only people that have an inheritance that transcends this cosmos. Before me sits, if you are in Christ, future regents of a new creation. The church has been, according to Acts 20, obtained with the blood of Christ. Nothing in history has had a higher price tag than the church. Nothing has had a higher bride price than the church. The combined resources of the entire universe pale in comparison to the blood of God. Nothing has had a higher price tag, brother and sister in Christ, than your soul. So let us live in such a way that honors that. Now we are not so valuable because of intrinsic worth, but rather because of the price that was paid because of Christ. We are a people under the parentage and under the covenant love of the living God. The church is also called a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, buttress are those walls that support the main walls to uphold the roof. They are added supports to the central pillar or structure. The church as a pillar is a straightforward metaphor expressing its load-bearing role in upholding the truth. The church has been ordained by God to uphold, explain, live out, proclaim, and pass on the truth. Now, the truth concerning what? And this is a critical question. The truth concerning what? What does the church hold in trust that no other entity, no other group, no other people have been entrusted with? But not only entrustment. I'm also talking about the power and the ability to actually understand that truth. What mysteries of truth does the church alone have clarity in? Now, before you think that these are arrogant statements, let us be consistent with God's Word, and let me walk out what I mean here, that the church has been entrusted with a truth that she alone has the power and the authority to understand under and through the authority of the Word of God. This mystery of godliness as we see in verse 15. That the church alone holds what? The truth concerning God himself. That the people of God alone are entrusted with the knowledge of God and the ability to truly know God. The outside world perceives only what it cannot know about God. They can look at the world and they can identify that there is a God, but it becomes a big mystery and they try and fill in the gaps with all kinds of other things. But it is only the church of the living God under the parentage of God with the indwelling spirit of God, with the power of the spirit of God to understand the word of God that actually has the insight to know God. Which means you have been entrusted, brother and sister, with a glorious responsibility. 
a glorious opportunity. The church actually perceives God, and she alone, by the Holy Spirit, sees deeply into the nature of God and the true fabric of time and space, the true ordering of the universe, the true reality concerning existence and eternity, and actually what really matters in the grand scheme of human history. The world outside is trying to explain the ordering of the universe and how it operates. The people of God, through the Word of God, through the interpretation that the Holy Spirit of God gives, we actually do know that there is a God, that He exists in three persons eternally, that there are angels and that there are demons, that there are powers and a spiritual realm, that there is an ordering that began at creation and this cosmos will come to an end and ultimately result in a new creation, that there is eternity that is dependent upon and through the work of Christ, eternity in heaven and eternity in hell. This is not mythology, brothers and sisters. This is the truth about the actual ordering of the universe. The church has been entrusted with these mysteries of godliness. What is she supposed to do with them? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But if, in fact, the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth, the family of the living God, under the parentage of the living God, and entrusted with the power of God to know God, if all these things are true, then why are you not at church? Oh, I, I, I can worship driving down the road, sure. I can listen to podcasts, sure. But brothers and sisters, God has ordained his truth to be carried out through the community of the people of God. And I would argue you cannot know God deeply apart from church. Students, care about your brothers and sisters, get them to go to church. Not to check off some box of religiosity. I'm biased. I hope you guys come here. But if not here, just get him plugged in to a Bible-believing church of which there are many here in Lynchburg. Friend, heritage, brother and sister, draw people into the community of faith through the love of God so that they might understand with others the deep truths about the Word of God and the knowledge of God. Now, I've made some grand notions and statements here based on 1 Timothy 3. Let's look at a secondary evidence in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 to 16. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 to 16. Speaking of the church, listen to what Paul says. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. There's grand, glorious truth here that God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in Him? So no one also comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, 
We, the church, have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand freely the things given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Critical question. Who can understand the mind of God? Look at this profound last statement. But we, the church, the people, have the mind of Christ. Who? Who can know God? Only the spirit of that individual. That is the point he's making. And who do we have? The indwelling Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ, the very mind of God. The Holy Spirit reigns within us. We therefore have the mind of God. Therefore, you have access and understanding into the deep truths about God as the people of God in a way that the world will never have. You've been gifted something, brother and sister. You've been gifted something glorious. You've been obtained by his blood. You've been implanted with the very mind of Christ through the presence of the Spirit. We have access to the very divine thoughts of God himself. You see, the unregenerate person reads through the Bible And God in his grace may give some illumination that leads them to salvation, but for the most part, they read through the Bible and they go, pfft, it doesn't make sense. But the one who has the indwelling spirit reads through the Bible day by day and interacts with the very mind of God. You have access to converse with divine omnipotence anytime you want to. These are glorious truths. And we're to safeguard these truths. Now, what truths are central to the church, to the mind of God? If we have the mind of Christ, what are central to the mind of God? What do Christians believe? What do we preach and proclaim? Now, Paul's concern for the church in Ephesus is that they will understand what is central to Christian faith. And so he recounts what we think might be actually an early church hymn or an early church confession. He says in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Great indeed we confess This word confess has the idea by common confession or or by common understanding, something that we, we acknowledge we all agree upon. The idea is that in keeping with what we believe and confess about Christ, let us not detract from it. Let's not deviate from it. 
It's very hymnic in its understanding and very confessional in terms of its poetic flow. It consists of three couplets. So we have flesh and spirit, angels and men, mankind, nations, ethnicities, and then we have world and glory. So you have three couplets that are arranged here, and we see that the church is entrusted with being a pillar with regards to these truths, these truths that enable us to know and understand God. Let's look at all six of them. Number one, the first statement, manifested in the flesh. What does the church believe? We believe that God became man, manifested in the flesh. God became man in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. We call it the incarnation. He came into this world. You see, Paul's incarnational understanding of Jesus makes Jesus and not the law of the Old Testament or anything else, but it makes Jesus God's definitive self-disclosure. If you want to look at God, you look at Jesus. Jesus himself said in John 13 and 14, if anyone has seen me, he has seen the Father. So if you want to know the mind of God, you look at the mind of Christ. You look at who Jesus is. He was manifested in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the word here that says revealed, uh, the Greek word phanerao, uh, does not mean to, to bring into existence. It doesn't mean that Jesus came into existence at a specific point. Rather, it means He was revealed. He has always been there, but He was revealed in the flesh. Why? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise particularly the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. In order for God to deal with the sins of mankind, God has to become man so that man can pay for the sins of man. This is not just doctrinal exercise for doctrine's sake. This has critical implications about what we believe. The church has long wrestled to make sure that we have understanding and clarity with regards to what we believe. If you study through church history, you can see it, and very clearly, even in Acts chapter 17, what's going on? In Acts 17, the elders in Jerusalem, they gather together and they begin debating what? Is it necessary for one to be circumcised in order to be saved? The question has to do with the nature of salvation itself. They debated and discussed and eventually came and said, no, you don't have to follow the law. Christ has in fact accomplished it all in his humanity on our behalf. He fulfilled the law. The first church council but down through the next couple of centuries as we look through church history, the church debated different things. Why? Because wrong understanding came up. Because when we look at the, the, the nature of Christ, the person of Christ, the fact that he came in the flesh, God became man, this concept more than any other is the most attacked concept in our faith throughout, throughout church history. 
In the first two centuries, rising up out of the apostolic age came a belief that was called docetism, that Jesus was not fully flesh, or Gnosticism, that Jesus is not fully God. It so gained ground throughout the Mediterranean region that the churches convened the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. So, you know, you're looking at about 300 years after the time of Christ. They convene a council and they work to bring clarity on this issue. They came up with the Nicene Creed, of which this is an excerpt. Jesus Christ, God from God, light from light, very God from very God. He came down and was made flesh, was made human, suffered, and rose again the third day. But this was not the end of the church's battles. Another view came up that we call the, the monophysite view of Christ. And this is the understanding that Jesus had only one nature. He was not both human and God, but he was just human or just God. But you couldn't have both. So again, the church is gathered together in the Council of Chalcedon in 451 and said that Jesus was one person, but with two coexistent natures both human and divine. The Council of Chalcedon is actually a pretty significant moment in church history concerning the nature of Christ. And in 451, this is an excerpt of what they wrote. In agreement, we all unanimously teach that we should confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is one and the same Son, the same perfect in Godhead, the same perfect in manhood, truly God, and truly man, the same of a rational soul and body, co-substantial with the Father in Godhead, and the same co-substantial with us in manhood, like us in all things except sin, begotten from the Father before the ages as regards His Godhead, and in the last days the same because of us and because of our salvation. He alone is Savior." The property of each nature is preserved and coalescing in one prosopon, one person, and one hypostasis, two natures being in one, not parted, not divided, but one and the same nature. Now, you may say, what? That sounds like a bunch of theological jargon. What's the point? If you divide the natures or you say that Jesus is not fully man or fully God, here's what happens. Salvation itself falls apart because Jesus can only pay for the sins of mankind is if, in fact, he is fully a member of the human race and can actually suffer in place, what we call the substitutionary atonement, on the cross in our place. And he can only reconcile us to God if he is God because only God can reconcile people to God. So what is God's solution? This great mystery that we call the person of Christ, fully man, fully God, on the cross, paying the debts of the sins of mankind, and in the same breath saying, it is finished, and reconciling us to the Father. If you begin to divide out and cast aside and say, ah, it doesn't matter. It may not seem like a big deal in the moment, but I promise everything that we believe will begin to fall apart. 
But that was not the end of the church's battles. In 381 all the way through 681, we have the first, second, and third councils of Constantinople. The second council of Nicaea, where people were trying to denounce that Jesus was actually God's son. And the second council of Nicaea, they said, no, Jesus really is God's son. Now you may say, see, <laughs> yes, you just showed. Truth is relative. It is not fixed, but flawed. And the product of churches down through history, if they change their positions, this shows that our faith is in fact just an evolving aspect of human history. And I would argue and say no. The church through history, rather, has been in the process of affirming and clarifying what has always been in the Word. We are Sunday after Sunday always in the process of clarifying what has always been in the Word. Let me use a parallel analogy. Just because scientists have come to different conclusions on the nature of the physical world down throughout history does not mean that they invented aspects of science. Them coming to a theory is not them creating science. Scientists are learning off of the physical world and bringing clarity to what was always there. The law of thermodynamics did not come into existence when it was proposed. Uh, the, 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 the knowledge and the understanding that the earth is round is, did not come into existence just because it was proposed by a theory. These are scientists recognizing what had always been true. The church and the process of theology is the rigorous understanding of bringing clarity to what has always been true in the Word of God. And that's what we see throughout church history. When we look at Jesus coming in the flesh, it has had profound impacts down throughout the church, down throughout the centuries. The first, third, fourth, fifth, sixth century were really mired with controversy and heresy. And then the church really became more of an established fixture of society and became quite a powerful entity, really rising to prominence in the 11th century under Pope Innocent III, who was not quite so innocent. Gregory of Rome in 6th century was really the first, as we understand, the popes. And these were bishops, the bishops of Rome, that were seen as kind of the supreme leaders of the church. So there became a shift from doctrinal heresy to where does authority come from? Where is our authority? And the church began to consolidate authority. I mean, the, the wider church began to consolidate authority. We even have actually, and this is an excerpt from the Roman Catholic Church, the historical document Pope, penned by Pope Gregory VII, um, and this is, uh, was his argumentation for papal authority. And he says, the Ecclesia Romana was founded by God alone. Its bishop is rightly called universal. It has never erred and never will. Nobody is a Catholic who does not agree with it. The Bishop of Rome can ordain anyone apart from uh, anyone from any part of the church. He alone can depose, reinstate, or transfer bishops to another region. A papal legate, even though of lesser ecclesiastical rank, is under the Pope. The Pope has the power to depose emperors. The Pope may 
permit or command certain subjects, but he is, in fact, over all subjects. The Pope alone may use the imperial insignia. All princes and all authorities shall kiss his foot alone. Pope Innocent, quite the ego, isn't it? He claims supreme authority over all the earthly authorities. Authority moved away from Scripture to popes and councils. Now, in the 15th century, we have what is called the Reformation. Often people think Reformation, the Reformation proposed by Martin Luther, John Calvin, those guys who came on the scene, um, it was all about justification by faith. In actuality, the Reformation is the recovery of scriptural authority. The recovery of scriptural authority. Where for centuries, people behind the scenes were held to scriptural authority, but the Reformation brought it out into full froth. And what happened was, is Martin Luther, John Calvin, and men like this said, no, the Pope is not the final authority on who is justified. He does not have the right to determine who gets to heaven and who doesn't by virtue of indulgences, paying your way into heaven. The authority of salvation is based upon the Word of God, and that Word says that we are justified, made right with God through the work of Christ by faith. But it was an issue of authority. It was an issue of authority. So when we look at justification by faith and that that justification can only happen if God became man and stand in the place of mankind. So the very first aspect of this creed is that God became flesh and stands in our place. And then number two, he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was proven to be true by his death and his resurrection. Vindicated by the Spirit means like he was declared truly righteous. He was declared who he said he was by the cross and by the resurrection. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, it says, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He has proven the satisfactory sacrifice for sin at the cross when he said, it is finished. He was proven a sacrifice accepted by the Father at the resurrection when the Spirit vindicated and declared him to be who he said he was, and he rose again in power. The resurrection is not just simply, he's alive, woo-hoo. The resurrection is a divine declaration that says everything Jesus said he was is in fact true. And the Father saying, Jesus, I accept your work. Rise again. Manifested in the flesh, his work is proven to be true, vindicated by the Spirit. See, the work and completion of the work of Christ is critical to our faith now, what are some of the dangers that we face today with regards to both of these first two points? And, and I would say very strongly, um, one of my concerns is, in fact, doctrinal indifference. One of our dangers today is not docetism or monophysitism, 
as we see in the second, third, or fourth century. But frankly, it's because many Christians are like, what's the point of doctrine? Just give me what I need for today. And that might not show the effects of such indifference in your generation, but brother and sister, if you do not hold fast, yes, even to the deep things of the truth, it is your children who will pay the price. And they will be ripe picking for the wolves of this world to destroy their confidence in the work of Christ. Doctrinal indifference. Give us the practical here and now. We're in the pursuit of immediate gratification of what we think we need. And we forget to revel in the glories of Christ and to guard them with our might. Because he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Number three, seen by angels. This is the affirmation of the angelic host announced at the resurrection at his incarnation to a bunch of shepherds. The affirmation to all of the cosmos that's going on right now in heaven, we see according to Isaiah chapter 6, where the creatures day and night do not cease crying out, holy, holy, holy. Number four, he is proclaimed among the nations that the mission of the church is to proclaim who Christ is. We are not just a scholastic entity that we hedge in until Christ returns. Rather, we have been given a great commission imperative that one of the core aspects of our faith is that Jesus Christ came into the world. He proved who he was. He's been testified by the angelic host. And you, my brother and sister, have been entrusted with the mind of Christ. Now, what are you supposed to do with it? Go into the world and tell everybody about it. We're a church on the move. And the result of that is the promise that God is going to build his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And so we see that he is believed on in the world, that it is by faith, that he is going to build his church, that as we go forward, people are going to be saved. And we go forward knowing, number six, that he was taken up in glory. Now, what is the significance of that? He died, but he didn't stay in the tomb. He ascended back into heaven and he reigns. He is enthroned. He is exalted, which means that the church is under the oversight of a living, exalted Christ. That the church is guarded by the living God. That Jesus who said, I will build my church right now, sits exalted. He has been raised from the dead, Ephesians 1, seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church is to be a pillar of truth, to uphold these core tenets of the faith that are central to who we are, to proclaim Christ, for you have the mind of Christ. And he sits exalted, and we have been called to go into the world to be proclaimed among the nations, among 
face to face, interacting with a fallen world and showing them the God who came in the flesh to save their soul with his own blood. The church historically has deviated from these central truths, much to her peril. There was once an old church in England. A sign on the front of the building read, We preach Christ crucified. But over time, ivy began to climb over the sign, and after a while, it then read, We preach Christ. Over some years, the ivy grew more, and the motto then just simply read, We preach. Finally, ivy covered the entire sign, and the church died. Such is the fate of any church that fails to carry out its mission in the world. And you can see this progress. Gee, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But the first step is we lose sight of the resurrection and the cross and what Jesus accomplished. And then we just preach Christ and we talk about how he was a loving person and he helped the sick, which he did all those things, but then that becomes the focus. And then we lose sight of Christ and he blends into the background. And then the church becomes a place where we simply preach. But what do we preach? Politics? how to have a good life, finances, do your best and the Lord will reward you and give your money in your bank account so you can live your best life now. And eventually people say, I can get the same thing from a podcast and not give up my golf tea time on Sunday morning. Therefore, what's the point of going to church? The church loses its power because the only power we have is in the message of Christ. And when we lose the message of Christ, the church dies. Brother and sister in Christ, it is not just my job to hold on to these truths. We are the people of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We are the church, and we must hold fast and never depart from what has been handed down to us by the grace of God and the goodwill of God. May we be faithful until the Lord comes again. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we will believe. May this belief generate mission. May this mission go forward in proclamation until you come again. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to live as the church ought to live. If there is someone here who has not put their faith and trust in Christ, would you stir their heart and soul, bring conviction this morning? And if that is you, there will be pastors down here at the front after the service is over. We'd love to talk with you. Heavenly Father, guide us as your people. Give us the gift and the grace of humility, but the depth and strength of conviction to carry your gospel forward. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.